The following content is provided under a Creative Commons license. Your support will help MIT OpenCourseWare continue to offer high-quality educational resources for free. To make a donation or view additional materials from hundreds of MIT courses, visit MIT OpenCourseWare at ocw.mit.edu. Uh, okay, so today what we want to do is uh, we want to talk about uh, kind of two related topics. So the first is going to be this question of uh, the evolution of virulence and how to model host-parasite interactions more broadly. All right, that's kind of modeled on chapter 11 of Martin's book. We'll focus on the first half of it for the discussions today. All right, this is in the context of when uh, a given host can only have one, uh, one strain of uh, the parasite or virus or whatnot uh, inside, um, the, in, inside that body. Okay? Uh, the, the model presented in Martin's book is, um, is very similar to kind of classic models in epidemiology, which are the so-called uh, SIR type models, uh, where you divide up the host population into whether the, they are uh, sensitive, i.e. non-infected, infected, or resistant. Okay? And then we'll, uh, we'll kind of draw the parallels of how we get from the model that we talked about in Martin's book, or that you read about in Martin's book, to the classic SIR models. Okay? But in both of these cases, the, the fundamental parameter that drives these things is this R0 parameter. It tells us about uh, the expected number of individuals that will be uh, of new cases that will result when you introduce one infected member into the population. Uh, only a little bit, but uh, I would say, depending on time, if, if you're interested in, in the superinfection discussion more, uh, we can talk about it after class, maybe. Uh, right. Uh, okay. So for the second half of the class, what we're going to do though is that we're going to uh, talk about the possible evolutionary benefits, benefits of sex, right? and in particular, we'll uh, we'll talk about this hypothesis, which is kind of one of the reigning hypotheses for why it might be that sex is as widespread as it is, which is this uh, the Red Queen hypothesis, right? From uh, from Lewis Carroll's novel. It's kind of, uh, and 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 we're going to discuss this paper that. Uh, you guys read about uh, running with the Red Queen, which I think is kind of a nice, uh, has a nice discussion of this debate, and then some nice experiments uh, looking at experimental coevolution between uh, the C. elegans worm and its infecting parasite, which is a Serratia uh, bacterium. Okay. Right, any, any questions before we get going? Okay, what I want to do is, is start by discussing. Uh, this model in, in, Martin's, uh, in Martin's book, but also a little bit, there's a little bit of this phil a philosophical question. Uh, you know, anytime that you have, uh, you have, a, you have modeling, you, you always have to make decisions about uh, which of the details you want to try to model and which of the de details you do not want to model. And uh, depending upon the, the situation, it may be that some assumptions are more or less appropriate than others. Right? Now, in the model that, uh, that Martin wrote down, uh, you can, uh, well, okay. Well, we'll try to figure out what the assumptions are here. Okay. So we have uh, we have these, what you might think of as some sensitive individuals, uh, plus the infected individuals are going to interact at some rate beta. So this is how uh, the sensitive become infected, and it results in now two infected individuals. Okay. Now, of course, each of these uh, individuals will uh, say have some lifespan or die at some rate. All right, so this we're going to say this uh, diet, the, sen the sensitive or uninfected individuals' diet rate u, whereas infected individuals, uh, there is uh, an increase in the death rate described by some virulence v. Okay. 
Now, uh, the model as written, what's going to be the fate of the population? Yeah, yeah, right. everyone's going to die, right? Uh, and, and, and that's even true in the apps. It's not even that the population's dying as a result of the infection, right? Because even in the absence of any infected individuals, you know, you just have people dying, right? So you need to have some way of keeping the population going so that you can study it, perhaps. And what, uh, what we're going to assume is that, uh, that sensitive individuals or uninfected individuals will enter the population just at some rate k. Now, and oh, okay, right. So, in terms of in terms of the philosophical question, uh, that in the beginning of, of the chapter, Martin uh, talks a bit about this question of microparasites versus macroparasites. Okay. And uh, can can somebody remind us what what's the distinction and wh what kind of uh, what kind of parasite might this be intended to model? Yes. That's right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right, and you know, and I'd say that just given this distinction between the microparasites that might be viruses and bacteria as compared to the macroparasites that are things like you know tapeworms and so forth, uh, it's not obvious from that that you would have two different kind of modeling frameworks, but. Uh, what what is the argument that um, that is made in in Martin's Martin's book, or c can you think up an argument for why it is that th it might be this kind of model you would want to use for microparasites? Yes. That's right. I'd say that. And some of it's maybe a, even a historical thing that we, uh, there might be right, huge numbers of viruses, you know, a flu virus or so in, in an infected individual. And in some ways, maybe the number of viruses that is in that host is not the most relevant thing. Uh, and it certainly would be much more complicated to try to keep track of that. Right, so if, uh, if you can get um, kind of meaningful predictions by instead of keeping track, rather than keeping track of the number of viruses, say, in each host, instead you just, Put the hosts into different classes, you know, sensitive and infected, for example. Later, we'll talk about what happens if you have a resistant type of class, right? But uh, but the idea there is that there's maybe an all, even also some separation of time scales, right? Because you get infected and kind of quickly you come to you're just sick and maybe infective, uh, and but at some rate you get you get better. And it's not that uh, it you'll necessarily gain very much by keeping track of the precise number of viruses in the host. Of course, this is ultimately an experimental observational question of whether this sort of model provides you the insight that, uh, that you're going to need to make sense of these diseases. Right? And then it also has um, transmission transmission That's right. So the, the mechanism of transmission, and this, this depends very much on, uh, on the disease that you're studying. Right? Uh, and the, the macroparasites, in many cases, they're, they're transmitted not from direct uh, interactions between the hosts, but through uh, 
you know, through the environment or, or something else. Yeah. Um, it's also perhaps just worth pointing out that, uh, that parasites are just a ubiquitous aspect of life. Right? So you can kind of uh, name an organism, and you can pretty much uh, be guaranteed that there's going to be some notion of a parasite on, on that organism. And there can be multiple, uh, multiple layers of this. right? So uh, you know, we certainly have many parasites. We, we're, we're infected by many viruses and bacteria and, and other things. Right? But, uh, but bacteria, even though, you know, we think of them as being very small, but they're also preyed upon by, uh, by these phage, right? which, are, uh, which is a, it's a, it's a parasite that targets specifically bacteria. Right, so it's not just that it's an incidental thing, that, but these are really uh, viruses that have evolved specifically to, uh, to divide in, in bacteria. Right? Uh, and in, uh, we didn't really talk about this very much, but one of the classic models for uh, cooperation and cheating uh, is based on what you could think about as some sort of uh, parasitic subpopulation within phage. Right? So this is a classic paper by Lin Chao where he showed that if you evolve phage and bacteria in a condition where many phage infect a given bacteria, then uh, you can evolve what you could think of as cheater, uh, cheater strategies or cheater phage, because these are phage that, don't, uh, that maybe can't reproduce on their own, but have shorter genomes and can kind of you know, can out-replicate the normal phage. So if these, both of these end up in a single bacterial cell, then these cheater phage can spread. By, by taking advantage of, the, say, the replication machinery from the rest of the phage. Right, so this is, in some ways, you might call that a, some sort of DNA parasite or, or so. Right? So there's really parasites at many, many different levels. Okay. Yes? Yeah, you know, uh, I, I would say that, yeah, the K is in some ways not a very satisfying feature of this model because it makes it feel that the model is very special. Right? No, but I mean, in, in an actual population, the rate at which people are born, like, is that the same uh, yeah, Yes. So I guess that, that was the example I was going to give. It's not clear that, um, that this is, of course, it requires somebody to give birth to kids, right? Uh, so you know, so in that sense, modeling this as a constant number per unit time, which is what we're doing, this rate k, right, is is a little bit funny because then what you'd really want to do is say, oh, maybe that it's it's these guys that give birth at some rate or so, if you really want it to be accurate. So I'd say that this is, uh, in some ways, just a mathematical simplification so that we can uh, get at the heart of the dynamics. And you, what we'll see is that in these SIR models, uh, you don't invoke anything like uh, like this, but rather what you do is you assume that at some rate, in, infected individuals uh, can, um, well, they don't just die, but they, they become resistant. And then maybe a later, they become sensitive again. Right? So, so you just need, you need some way of making sure that it's not the case that everybody just always dies. Right? So in some ways, this is more mathematical convenience. And uh, the basic conclusions end up being very robust to these sorts of things. So it's, uh, you know, in, in these models, it's always good to be clear about uh, how we kind of go from this framework to something that is, is more of a differential equation. Uh, and what, we're, what we can do is we can think about the, uh, these uninfected individuals, uninfected, i.e., the S's as compared to the infected. And we're going to have these guys be X. All right, so first of all, the way that the 
and this is okay, this is S and I, right? So the way that that the the x will be changing is that you, we're assuming that, that there's always some influx of individuals, which could be birth or migration or something else, right, that are just always entering. Okay. But then there's going to be two ways that, uh, that x is going to decrease. Right? One is that there's just a death rate that is resulting uh, in the absence of infection. Okay. But then also there's going to be some rate of infection, which is going to be proportional to beta. Right? So this is the simplest way that you can imagine uh, uh, capturing this, this element that, that the infected individuals uh, can, uh, can transmit the infection to the sensitive individuals. Okay? So it's proportional to some we're, we're modeling them as it's just kind of a well-mixed population, just like in chemical reactions. And uh, somehow, the, the rate of infection is proportional to the kind of frequency that they, they hit each other. Right? Certainly the simplest, simplest kind of model you can imagine. Okay? All right, whereas the infected individuals, well, what we're going to have is we're going to have an increased rate of death. Right? Uh, so, the sim all right, so this is a simplified way to write it. Okay. All right, so this is really that there's a minus kind of a u plus v times y. So this is just the death rate. Okay. But then uh, any individual that leaves the sensitive class, this minus beta xy, enters the uh, infected class. All right, so this, this makes a lot of sense, I think. And now the question is, um, can, we, can we kind of make, make sense of what's going on? Now, uh, the, right, so you, you saw in your reading what this R0 parameter was. Right? And you should always remember that it, it's defined as this thing of if you kind of have one, if you introduce one infected individual into a population of sensitive individuals, what is the mean number of new infections that you get? Right, and it makes sense that it, that the key thing is whether that uh, that R naught is kind of greater or less than one, because if it's greater than one, that leads to this uh, exponential kind of explosion of the infected individuals. Doesn't mean that everyone's going to die necessarily, because uh, well, we'll, I'll, we'll get into that. But okay, but if R naught is less than one, then then you expect that uh, that infection to kind of die out, right? So why is it that it weren't that when you if if R naught is greater than one and you introduce one infected individual, it doesn't necessarily lead to and you know, kind of, you know, wipe out of the entire population. Or maybe it does. I don't, you know. but this model is a little funny because you always have an individual entering, right? But. Right, OK, so if it's very virulent, then the infected individuals may die quickly. And this gets into this question of so there may be some trade-offs in terms of virulence. And we'll talk more about then the ev evolution of virulence. But I guess the question is, uh, in, in, in a w there's a wide variety of classes of models, not just w where the ones where you have the K entering. But the, the question somehow is, uh, just because R0 is greater than 1, that doesn't mean that the entire population will necessarily become infected. Right, so because we have this idea of an exponential growth of the infected population if R naught's greater than one, right? So why is it that it's not necessarily going to happen that the entire population is? Well, this question is a little bit ill-posed in this model. Uh, is it because like the number of sensitive that's right. Okay, and I think this is the basic intuition that as the infected, as more and more uh, members of the population become infected, then that could, in, in principle, <coughs> reduce the um, the 
possibilities for, uh, for new individuals that, to be you know, kind of susceptible. Okay. All right. And I, I'm using susceptible and sensitive at the same, you know, interchangeably. So, um, right. And, and so, so eventually, this exponential rate of uh, kind of growth of the population can be kind of limited in some way. Right. We'll, we'll maybe look at this a little bit more in this SIR model because it's more clear. Okay. Um, so this is a basic reflective rate. Or not as a rate. Right? Uh, no, it's 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 a number. Right? It's this expected number of new infections you get when you introduce one infected individual into the population. All right, and we're, we're it's like curious. So there's no not like per unit time or. It's a number. Okay. Period. So you expect that if you if you have r is equal to one, you expect that. When you introduce an infected individual into a population of sensitive individuals, you will get yeah. one other infected. That's right. So that's kind of the neutrally stable situation. If R naught's one, then you inf you add one infected individual and you expect to get one other one. So you have a random walk and it'll either it'll well in general it'll it'll randomly go extinct eventually. Yeah. Yes. Right. So it depends upon a number. Yeah. And so let, that's what we're going to do right now is is uh, see if we can reconstruct what this R naught is equal to in in this model. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Right. So this is this is very interesting. Uh, right. So the question is, what is going to be the distribution of the number of infected individuals? Right. And in this model, we're assuming that every infected individual is the same. Right. So we should be able to. All right. I wish that we just had, on the wall somewhere had our five different standard probability distributions. Right. So that we could always go back to them. Right. But uh, right. So the question is, in this model, if you have if you introduce one infected individual in the population, how many new infected individuals you get? R not tells you about the mean, right? But will you always get the mean? No, right? Uh, all right. So let's let's all think about this for ten seconds, and we will verbally kind of yell out what we think the distribution will be of the number of new infections from a single infected individual. Okay. All right. We're Verbally, ready, five. Poisson. All right, everybody thinks it's Poisson. Why, why would it be Poisson? OK. Right, OK. OK, so the idea is we have, OK, now we imagine we're some infected individual. And there's some rate that we are infecting others, right? Okay. Now, if I ask you the question, oh, how many individuals will I infect in the next 10 days? Or we could do 21 days, if you guys like that. Okay. So, uh, right. So if I ask, okay, how many do I infect in the next 10 days, right? Now, I'm assuming that I stay alive. Okay, but let's say, assuming I stay alive, how many do I infect over the next 10 days? That's going to be distributed as... That is Poisson. Right? But the question that you're asking is a different one. You're asking, what is going to be the total, what is going to be the distribution of the total number of new infections that I cause? Right? And this is precisely the same situation that we've analyzed lots and lots of times. Right? What, what does it look like? Hmm? Geometric. Okay, okay, yes, it's going to be a geometric distribution, but why? It, well, 
That's right. So what, what we have is because we have, we have an infected individual, there's two things that can happen, right? Where we have they, he's going to die at some rate, and he will also um, have another, there's this other rate, which is going to go as beta times x or so, right? Telling us about the rate of new infections. And we want to know how many times we go around this loop before we degrade or die or something, you know, disappear from the population. Does this look at all familiar? All right. Were you guys the same, same students that were here for the first half of the class? Yeah. And so our no. model is like the VMAX. Yeah. It's like the number of, I mean, it's not really. It's like the, yeah, evaluated when the population All right, so R0 is the mean size of protein bursts mm -hmm. in the context of this other model, which was what was the situation? And this one's a really good one for you guys to know. It's going to be useful. Yeah, so what, yeah, what, what we saw th this exact model in the context of gene expression. And what was the, what was the situation that we? Production of? Yeah, production of proteins from a single mRNA, right? Because remember, we had this thing where we had the mRNA, and we said, oh, well, the mRNA is going to be degraded at some rate, but there's also going to, it's, going to be trans, it's going to be translated at some rate. So the distribution of the number of times that it's translated before it degrades is going to be geometric, because we go around this loop some number of times. Right, so this is the same, same thing. Okay. And the, uh, the, right, the paper that I, um, that I put a supplementary reading by Jamie Lloyd Smith, I always get his name and Jamie Lloyd Wright, right? Something uh, mixed up, but yeah, Jamie Lloyd Smith. Um, so he he was uh, studying the the dynamics of um, of infections when you have this thing where there's there's intrinsic variation in say the infectivity of an individual, right? Because here you get this geometric distribution, even though all the individuals are in principle identical, right? Now the question is, if you, there's some distributions of say infectivities then you'll get an even uh, kind of broader distribution of resulting uh, number of new infections. Right? Uh, right, so there's this classic thing of typhoid Mary, who was, she was a, a nurse that, OK, now I'm, I don't remember the story. Um, yeah? She was a cook. A cook, uh, cook nurse. OK, so, all right, so she was somehow resistant to typhoid, but then, uh, but then she was cooking for other people, and so then caused a bunch of infections. Is that, OK. Uh, yeah, so this would be an example of a very infective individual, right? That's beyond the, beyond the assumptions in this model. Right? And as you can imagine, if you have variations in this infectivity, then what it does is it, for a given R0, so if you fix R0, then you have a broader distributions of infectivities. What it means is that a larger fraction of the infections will go extinct, but those that get going will kind of be explosive. Okay? If you're curious about these sorts of ideas, you should, uh, you should look at the uh, the, this optional reading paper that I, I put out there. Okay. Right, so I just want to be clear. This is geometric, geometric number of new infections. Distribution uh, of new infections. Yes? So wait, is this just one infection? Like one? All right, so this, this is the. Right, so we're talking about the number of infections that result when you just add one infected individual into the population. Okay, so right. 
Well, uh, we are not yet thinking about them. Although in, in this case, those are all those are also geometrically distributed. But what you expect is that the mean of those things will change <coughs> because the number of uh, uh, susceptible or whatnot individuals that's going to change, right? But uh, so so the, the mean the mean number is going to change, but the distributions will still be geometric. No. So just because each of these sub-steps is geometric does not mean that, um, that you end up with a geometric distribution. Indeed, if you add up many, let's say that I put in 20 infected individuals into the population, and I ask what's going to be the distribution of the number of infections caused immediately from those 20, that's going to be what? Gamma and, and for 20, or, or it's going to be basically Gaussian. Or, OK, well, if I said 100, then you know, definitely Gaussian. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's a gamma distribution that looks very much like a Gaussian in that case. OK? All right? All right. OK, we, uh, so we've been talking about the definition of this R0, but of course, we should figure out what it, uh, what it is. All right? We want to R0 is equal to, and what I'm going to tell you is that it is, uh, there's a 1 over u plus b. Okay. But then there are some other terms, and I have unfortunately lost my notes. All right, so uh, you guys are going to have to help me figure this out. All right? um, and what you're going to do is you're going to take advantage of your cards, and again, put things in the numerators and put things in the denominators corresponding to how I'm supposed to fill out this equation. All right. You can start thinking about it while I give you the options. So what, uh, although I guess you could recapitulate this by just putting B and C. Although maybe you need it more than once. I, all right. Do what you will. Do you understand the, do you understand the question? All right. I'm going to have to, there's going to be something else I'm going to put right here. And I want to know there are going to be some things in the numerator, some things in the denominator. OK? I'm going to give you, uh, I'm going to give you 30 seconds to think about it. Because this is, uh, it's important to be able to reason your way through this. Um, All right, do you need more time? I'll give you another 15 seconds. All right, let's go ahead and vote. All right, ready? Three, two, one. All right, I, I like it. We're really looking quite nice. All right, 
So there's a claim that it's going to be AD over B, i.e., that it's going to be, we should be writing a beta K over U. Can somebody, can somebody explain uh, how they got there? Yes, please. Okay. Yeah. This this helped, right? Okay. Good. Right. So, perfect. So, yeah, exactly. So, th this this thing is what? What is this term here? Right. Uh, and which means that this whole that one over it is it's the it's the expected lifetime of an infected individual, right? So we uh, the definition of R naught is you put an infected individual into a population, right? Uh, of of susceptibles, right? Now we want to know, OK, well, there's a lifetime, expected lifetime of this uh, infected individual, which is given by this. Okay? And then we have to think about, OK, well, what's the rate that we're going to be infecting individuals? And that's going to be beta times x. Right? But uh, what we want to know is that is x before there we add any infection. Right? And without any infection, then we just have a rate of entry and then a death rate. So it's just k over u. Now, uh, the key thing in all of these epidemiological models is whether this R0 is greater or less than 1. And that's going to tell us whether uh, the disease becomes uh, endemic or not. Right? Whether at steady state we have, uh, you know, we have a population of infected individuals. Okay? So R0 greater than 1 means it's uh, an endemic population. All right, now, from, uh, in this model, we can then ask, <laughs> um, That's what everyone is really <laughs> All right, so do you like A, donuts, <laughs> B, cupcakes, or C, carrots? Um, yeah, that's quite nice. Does anybody have any notion of, of why somebody might have? All right, so Sam likes cupcakes. OK, that's good to know. I, 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 yeah, they're so pretty that I actually feel bad erasing it. Uh, okay. Well, we'll go ahead. We'll, we'll we'll leave it up there for a little bit longer, so that um, you know everybody can just smile because they know that the the drawing is back there. Um, all right. Uh, okay. So in this model, uh, the fact that that R naught is this parameter that tells us about whether there's going to be an epidemic, and then indeed whether later it's go the disease will be endemic, right? Does that does that already tell us that? R not is what's maximized by selection. No. All right. What was the key thing that uh, that Martin does in the chapter in order to try to understand something about uh, what strain is selected for? Yes? Right. OK, so uh, yes, although the, the, the part of the chapter you're thinking about is, I think, this, the second half is talking about super infection, where there's all these different types and the craziness and so forth. But 
Uh, the initial insight about what is going to be selected for comes from a simpler model than that. Yeah, so you don't have to think about all those many parasites and those triangles and every, all the craziness. Sure. Instead, there's a simpler, a simpler model that, yeah. If you have multiple parasites, um, the study says only that one parasite can exist. Um, That's right. And so what, what, what he does is he just writes down kind of this model of where he now allows kind of two different parasites with, and to, to, take, uh, to, to be spreading the population. And, and at the beginning, well, we'll write, we'll write it down, and, and we want to be clear about what there's a very important assumption that he makes. Okay? What, he, what he's going to find is that uh, selection maximizes R0, the, ba the, the basic reproductive ratio. All right, R0. And it's going to be in this model that I'm writing down now. So there's this x dot. And it, things look very similar. Now the question is, what is the key assumption that we're making in writing down these equations? Thought? That's right. A host cannot be infected by more than one type of strain. All right, so that's very, very important. Okay. So there's no super infection, as they say. Okay. Um, and, and depending on the disease, this could either be a better or a worse assumption. Right? Uh, but then what, what is it that is defining the, these two strains, then? In what ways are they different? Their virulence. Their virulence is different? Right? And the virulence here is, and, and wh what is virulence again? How likely it is that it's going to kill you. That's right. It's the additional mortality that is caused by the being infected by that, um, by that strain. Is that the only way that they're different? No. What else is different? The infectivity. Right? So the betas are also different. Okay. And uh, right, so it's, it's important to note that in this model, it's a very simple model, but we're allowing the, the strains to be different in these two ways. And I think that it's, it's very intuitive to just say, that, oh, well, the beta should some, you want to have a larger beta, all other things equal, right? because you'd like to spread. Okay? But uh, it's, I'd say maybe it's not as obvious what happens in terms of virulence. And then, of course, if you, if you think about these two parameters in any biological context may be coupled, in which case, uh, in which case it, things are more subtle. Yeah, I think that this very this depends on the disease. Right. So that that would be the that's kind of somehow the argument that uh, and, you know, and I'd say that there, there's there this can depending on whether you're thinking about the host at the level of an organism or a cell, then then the, the, this would correspond to very different worlds. Um, there, so certainly in the context of 
uh, viral infections in individual cells, there are various mechanisms where if one strain kind of gets in, then other strains have trouble getting in. Right? Uh, and, or if they do get in, they can't do anything. Right? So, then, so, yeah, so I think it really, this really depends on the biology of the situation, whether this is a reasonable assumption or not. Right, so I'm not going to go through all of the math because it ends up being a little, uh, a little bit involved. But there's an int I think it's the condition for the mutual invasibility of the two strains is um, is a little bit subtle. So I do want to I do want to talk about that a little bit. Okay. Right, so in general, in this model, there is some equilibrium. X star. And y star. And indeed, there will generally be damped oscillations to this equilibrium. Okay. So this is in the model where there's just a single strain that's described by some beta and some v. Okay. Of course, you can also think about the equilibria E1 and E2 that would result uh, when you have. So, so E1 is kind of what would happen. It's the equilibrium when you have x star evaluated at, you know, for, for the particular parameters of uh, strain 1, i.e., evaluated for beta 1 and for v1, x star, and that's also y star, right? Whereas you would have a different equilibrium, E2. Uh, yeah, so this is x star and a y star evaluated at beta 2 and v2. Do, do you understand what, I, what I'm saying? So these are the equilibria that you would have if this was the only strain that was present in the population, or if, thi or if this was the only strain in the population. Okay. Now it's not obvious that those are the equilibria that result when you have both strains present in the population, right? that, but that's what we kind of want to try to figure out. Right? But certainly, if you only added strain one and you didn't add strain two, you would come to the equilibrium E1. So the question is, how can we determine that if we start out at equilibrium E1, how is it we can determine what happens if we now add uh, an infected individual uh, but infected by strain 2? All right, so what we want to know is all right, strain 2 can invade. And, and really, what we're, we're thinking about is a situation. And th these, these are the equilibria if it's the case that R1 is greater than 1 and R2 is greater than 1. Because right? in some ways, it's clear what happens if, the, if, if both of the R1 and R2 is, are less than 1, then what happens? They both die out. Right? If one of them is greater than 1, one's less than 1, then, you know. Right, it's it, you know the strain that's below one goes out. You know, so the only interesting or the only the only non-obvious question somehow is what happens if they're both larger uh, larger than one. Right. What that means is that, for example, if you if you had a population of susceptible individuals and you added one strain one, one strain you know one infected strain one, one infected by strain two, right? Then in the deterministic kind of differential equation limit, they would both spread. Right. So they're both exponentially growing. Right. 
Does that already tell us that they're gonna, you're going to have coexistence of the two strains? No. Right? It means that you know, they're both exponentially spreading. But who knows what's going to happen later, right? Uh, and indeed, what, uh, what you can show is that only one of the two strains is going to win. And it's the strain with the higher reproductive ratio, the higher R0, or in this case. Right. So how is it that we can determine if strain 2 can invade equilibrium 1? It's if and only if something. Does anybody remember what this condition ended up being? Y2 dot at E1 has to be positive. Right. OK, yes. And, and this ends up being equivalent, I think, to what he writes. And OK, so let's write what he, let's, I'll write, tell you what. So the way he wrote it is that it's, it's, it's Y2 dot with respect to Y2. Um, but I think that this is really equivalent to what you said, though. Um, but it, it's a little bit, um, right, because you said, OK, it's Y2 dot has to be something, right? But then Y2 dot evaluated what? And you would say, oh, evaluated E1. But then at E1, yeah. So what is Y2 dot evaluated at E1? Zero. Zero, right? Because at E1, there's zero Y2. So then, of course, Y2 dot is zero, right? So it's almost what you want, but not quite, right? And so this condition, which looks very weird, it's really saying that all right, if we are at, we're at, E1, at E1, so there's no um, infected uh, type 2 infections, right? what we want to do is kind of add a little bit of Y2. And then we want to ask, what is Y2 dot? Right? And this derivative evaluated E1 somehow allows you to do that. Right? And do we want this to be greater than 0 or less than 0? Right? We're going to do a ver uh, verbal answer. Ready? 3, 2, 1, greater. Right? Because if it's saying you add a Y2, you want Y2 to start growing. Uh, so you want this thing to be greater than 0. And um, this looks really crazy, but it's actually pretty easy to do, because you take the derivative of this thing with respect to y2, and you just get the thing in parentheses. right? But you evaluate it at e1. So it's, it's beta 2, and this is x star at, um, at e1, right? minus u minus v2. And this thing has to be greater than 0. Okay. But this is x at e1. That's u plus v1 divided by beta 1. Okay. So what we have is a beta 2, then u plus v1 divided by beta 1. And this thing has to be greater than, and we'll move this over to the other side, u plus v2. Okay. So this is not so horrible, right? There's a u plus v1 beta 1, right? I just want to make sure I write u plus v1. OK, I, we have to put these in the denominators now somehow. Um, OK, so we'll put divide by both of these things. So we have a 1 divided by a u plus v2, 1 divided by u plus v1. Right, so we put these things in the denominator, right? And then now the beta 1 is going to come up here. So we have a, a beta 1 and a beta 2. And there still is a greater than sign. Did I, did I screw anything up yet? Maybe? No? All right. OK, now we can do something wonderful, which is we can just multiply by k divided by u. Right? 
Okay, so what does this say? R2 is greater than R1, right? And what were we trying to calculate? How did we get started on this math? Right, we wanted to ask, strain 2 can invade the equilibrium 1 if and only if. Oh, no, no, oh, sorry. R2 is greater than, all right. Um, okay. Now, that's interesting, right? So that's saying that if you start out with the endemic strain 1 and you add the uh, strain 2 in there, it's going to be able to invade if its R2 is greater than R1. That's not obvious. Because right, R2 and R1, that was, tell, that was telling us some, uh, a different situation. Right, that was telling us about what happens when you add those infected uh, individuals into a population of susceptibles. Okay. But this also ends up telling us about, the, um, about what happens when the strains are competing against each other. Right, I think. So this is, I think it's not, it's so simple that it feels trivial. But I, I, I'm sure that if you understood it well enough, it would be trivial. But you'd have to think about it more than I have. Okay? So I think this is surprising. Now. You can also ask the same question, which is that uh, is strain two can um, about whether strain one can evade strain two, right? And that is kind of the same thing, you know. So it all comes down to the orderings of R two and R one. Okay, and uh, what you what you find is that uh, is that strain two in, in this if this condition is satisfied, strain two will drive strain one uh, out of the population. Right, so if, if they're the same, then you can get coexistence. Um, but it, it's, it's as, uh, as Martin says, it's non-generic in the sense that uh, it's kind of a, a coincidence or it, you know, it's of measure zero, the situations in which the two will um, have the same R, you know, R parameters. Right. But, um, but of course, you can imagine, just like we talked about all this neutral evolution business, things are nearly neutral and so forth, da, 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 you can kind of invoke similar ideas. because. You can imagine that as these two become closer and closer to each other, it's going to take longer and longer for the, um, for the sort of more fit strain to outcompete the less fit strain. Okay. Right. Now, um, even though this is such a simple condition, and the R parameters have such a simple kind of uh, physical uh, kind of origin or mathematical origin, um, the actual expression for the R's is, is kind of complicated, right? So it, again, it's, it's a combination of all of these different parameters, where it's the beta 1, v1, or beta 2, v2. Okay. Right. So from, from this, you can start to think about uh, what will be, OK, which, all right. which board do you think is less, uh, least useful now? Well, I don't like this one anymore. Uh, but in particular, we want to say something about the evolution of virulence okay. in this model and, and what the expectation is. Okay. So what we're going to do is I, I'm going to give you some different situations in terms of how the uh, infectivity uh, depends upon the virulence. And then you get, guys will get to tell me what, um, how the virulence will evolve.
This is virulence V. So first situation is if um, beta as a function of the virulence, so the, the infectivity as a function of virulence is some, uh, we'll say, some beta naught. Right? So, it doesn't, so first the question is if the infectivity does not depend upon the virulence, right, where, will the, where will virulence go to? You have equation. Various places that'll help you. All right, do you need more time? No? All right, ready? Three, two, one. Okay, we got many A's. That's great. So if it's the case that it doesn't matter how, you know, that the, the parasite, regardless of how rapidly it's killing the individual, it, if it has the same rate of getting to other individuals, then in that case we want to make the R0 get as, sm uh, as large as possible. So then we make V go as small as possible. Right? That's the mathematical thing you can look at. And why does this make sense? Right, so from the standpoint of the, uh, of the parasite, if uh, in, in this situation where the infectivity doesn't depend on the virulence, well, in that case, uh, you don't want to kill your host because uh, the longer that the host lives, the more other individuals you can infect. Right? Uh, and this is the basic kind of statement underlying the, the statement that you often hear that a well-adapted parasite does not harm its host. And I think that this is one of those things that you can write down a simple model and convince yourself should be true. Uh, you can maybe find a few case studies where it seems to be true. Uh, but then uh, you always have to be careful about what, you know, how strongly you should believe such a statement based on those kinds of evidence. right? Because it's a very simple model. It's a making an assumption that is very likely not true, and actually many assumptions that are very, very likely not true. Uh, and there are counterexamples. Right? So Martin talks about malaria, which, is, which humans have had for uh, millions of years and, uh, and still cause us a lot of problems. Right? And so you might imagine, that, well, what would happen if, uh, if the infectivity is a function of the virulence? Maybe it's just proportional to the virulence. Right? And this kind of would maybe make sense, because you could say, oh, well, let's imagine that the number of viruses in the host, right? That somehow the the additional vir the virulence is just proportional to that number, and also the infectivity is proportional to that number, right? In that case, infectivity will just scale linearly with v, right? Does that? You know, it's kind of another reasonable world, right? Okay. So in this situation, where does uh, where does the virulence evolve to? All right. We'll um, think about this for ten seconds.
Alright, ready? Three, two, one. All right, so now we actually have votes that are pretty distributed around. Um, okay, I, I, I'm just going to write down the expression just because I think we can do it quickly, right? So now the R naught is going to be given by we're going to be thinking about a one. There's a u plus v down here, but beta now there's a we're going to put beta here. This is a a times v and then a k over u, right? If we plot this as a function of v, what does it look like? Monotonically increases. This is a Michaelis-Menten type form, right? Where uh, the R naught as a function of v starts out linear and then saturates, right? And we're trying to, oops, this is not v naught. This is R naught. If we want to maximize R naught, then V goes to infinity, right? Okay. There was one other model that, that Martin talked about, which was the situation if the infectivity itself had a kind of Michaelis Menten type form. Right? And this was again, this was okay, we still have an A there, so it's some A V C plus V. Right, so this would be the situation where uh, initially the infectivity increases with virulence, but um, beyond some, uh, some virulence, you no longer get an increased infectivity. So for example, if it's the case that every time you sneeze on somebody, you're going to infect them, then it doesn't matter if you double the number of viruses that you have, you're still, you've still saturated the infectivity. Okay? Right. Now, All right, I'll just tell you that in this case, there ends up being uh, some intermediate uh, infectivity that you evolve to, which comes here. And indeed, this kind of makes sense. As, as um, C goes to infinity, then you end up, wait, what do I want to, right. Oh, yeah, so if C is very large, then it just kind of looks like this. All right, it's divided by something large, but in terms of the scaling with v, it's just linear in v, right? And that means that the evolved virulence goes uh, very large. Okay. Does that make sense? No. Okay. I'm, I, so I guess all I, I, what I was saying is that if if c, you know, if you're in the region where c is somehow very large, okay, then um, then you end up with the infectivity just being kind of proportional to the virulence. Right, because the, the, the virulence, the V here in the denominator doesn't really contribute very much. Right? And if, you, if you're in the, that means that it's going to be the same kind of functional form as this, except if it's A divided by C, but it's still proportional to the virulence. And that, that leads to a, a larger and larger evolved virulence. Okay. Yep. Yes? Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. Right. Um, so I think from real data, I think people do uh, people do argue about it, but I think that it's um, it seems to be you know I guess if you had to, there is some sense that uh, that it it does plateau, but it does but it's it is a function of it's an increasing function of v, but not sublinear. 
Right? And the question is how strong of a statement you can make there. Because also, in many cases, there is superinfection. And superinfection tends to lead to even higher uh, virulence than what you would expect from this. Um, because you're competing against uh, viruses in the same host. Right? So you, you kind of have to outcompete out the other parasite uh, in the host as well as kind of go on. And you don't pay the full cost associated with keeping the host alive. Right? So when you have superinfection, there's this notion that it, it may, the, the better strategy from the standpoint of the parasite can be to just uh, evolve very high virulence. Right? So you're going to kill the host, but you can get out quickly. Right? So then, then you can imagine that the, the less virulent strain uh, was kind of stranded in that host that died. Right? Uh, so from that standpoint, you can think about, evolve, you know, in some cases, for a parasite, evolving low virulence is somehow like some cooperative behavior because uh, you're, you're keeping this host alive so that you can, uh, you're using the resources in a wise way so that you can, uh, you can infect other individuals. But then uh, that, that kind of strategy is susceptible to these cheating strategies that just have high virulence and kill the host and then get, get onto a new host. Right. Uh, yeah, so I think there are enough of these sorts of issues that it's hard to take any of this too seriously. I would say that perhaps where this field has had the, the biggest impact is in the context of, uh, of vaccinations. Right. Because uh, you can really measure R0 for many different, uh, many different diseases. And I think that that's somehow easier to measure than many other things, because you can uh, try to do uh, tracing of, um, of infections. Right? So if you think about somebody that gets infected and moves to a new city or, or you know, lands in a new city, you can try to figure out who they, who they infected. Right? So then you can go and measure these R0 parameters. Right. And, uh, and of course, the diseases that we, we worry about tend to have R0s larger than 1. Right? Uh, and how large they are tells you about how difficult the va va um, kind of vaccination will be in order to, um, in order to be successful and, and to remove the, um, the disease from the population. Right? So uh, if, you're, if you're curious, after class, you can come up. And there's a nice table uh, that I have here. For smallpox, measles, whooping cough, German measles, chickenpox, diphtheria, scarlet fever, mumps, and poliomyelitis, uh, estimates of, uh, of R naughts. Right? And they, they kind of range, um, they're kind of 5 to, five to 15, to give you a sense. Right? Uh, and so, wh which diseases? Uh, right, so, if you want to remove the disease from the population, what is it that changes in terms of vaccination uh, in order to re remove the disease? Yes. That's right. So you you um, by vaccinating, you're kind of removing susceptible individuals from the population and making them resistant somehow, right? And uh, and the R not parameter tells you about what fraction of the population you have to vaccinate in order to remove the uh, the parasite from the population, All right? So they're basically. You have to vaccinate a fraction of a uh, uh, percentage, uh, or p that's greater than one minus one over r naught. Okay. So as r naught kind of gets very large, it means that you have to vaccinate essentially everybody. Okay. So if if, if you have r naught of say five, which is typical of many of these diseases, it's saying you kind of have to vaccinate uh, kind of eighty percent of the population. Right. You can never get to one hundred percent. Right. And that that's why it's very difficult to get rid of these get rid of these diseases with large r naughts. Um, and incidentally, they note that smallpox 
has an R naught of kind of three to five. In, and this is of course this always depends on the environment, da, 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 but in the case where they measured, uh, smallpox R naught is kind of three to five. And, and this is sort of small as compared to many of these diseases. And this is telling us that, uh, that smallpox is easier to get rid of via vaccinations than many of these other diseases. And indeed, we've, um, you know, the, the vaccination uh, procedures have been more successful in smallpox than, it, than the others, right? Do you know what yeah. you I, I don't. Uh, but if, you know, maybe, uh, maybe in the next 20 minutes, somebody can Google uh, this. And uh, at least uh, I, we, can, we can estimate this right, right now, though. You know, I mean, we ha we've had, what, you know, five Ebola patients come to the United States, and we've gotten two or three infections. So right, I'll, I'll say three-fifths. <laughs> this, it, it obviously depends on the environment, right? Yeah. Uh, yes? I mean, I guess that was my question. Like, we're not going to take someone with Ebola and like, throw them in a New York City and just measure you know, how many people That's right. So, <laughs> Yeah, no, but no, but R not, no, but the thing is, you don't have to do, you don't have to do anything that's so immoral because what you're interested in is the R not for an individual in an actual environment that they're actually going to be in, right? So this is a situation where, you know, the doctor comes back from Africa after working with Doctors Without Borders, right? He knows, you know, in this day, you know, he knows that he has to watch out for a fever, da da da, and then if he gets a fever, he calls in and he's brought to the hospital, right? And that's the world that we're interested in of what the R not is, right? It's not the world in which you know, there's fevers everywhere, and nobody knows, you know, and, you know, right? So it's, um, so the, the R-naught in the United States is going to be much lower than the R-naught in, you know, somewhere else, right? Yeah? Um, is there a notion of R-naught for a disease that you don't transmit to people if you get malaria or something? Yeah, right. So I, I think that you could try to generate a, a similar kind of R-naught for those diseases, although I think that it's going to be very muddled, right? In the case of where you have all the vectors and so forth, because it's not even clear. Yeah, I, I, yeah. Okay, I'm hesitant. I'm hesitant to to say too much because I don't know anything. Uh, for Ebola, here or in? Um, it, it says the 2014 West Africa. Ah, okay. So th this is this is in West Africa, then. Okay. Right. Yeah, and the, and the idea is that it, it has obviously spread exponentially, which means it has to, it had to have been larger than one, right? But and I think it's important to remember that you know just because you have a chart with a bunch of R naughts, this is not set in stone, right? Public policy, hygiene, and everything changes this, right? And we'd like to drive it down. Yeah. Was there a question in the back? I was just say Same thing. About two. Okay. All right. Um, right. So that means that uh, that. We can actually, in principle, vaccinate against Ebola. We only have to get, you know, over 50% of the population vaccinated in West Africa, and then we can maybe uh, make it so it cannot spread and become an epidemic, right? Of course, we need to have a vaccine first, right? All right. So I, I think that I'm going to skip the discussion of SIR models because you are going to uh, play with some of them in the context of your problem set, um, and if you just Google SIR, you can. Fine. And very similar uh, kind of intuition that you get from this model. Okay. Um, I do uh, because I do want to spend the last 15 minutes at least uh, talking about the evolution of sex because it is uh, an interesting topic and 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 I think that the paper is kind of a nice uh, discussion of it. Uh, all right. All right. So can somebody say why it is that 
this is uh, you know, kind of a puzzle at all. That's right. Uh, all right, so, so, right, so sex is costly. And in particular, if you have this obligate biparental sex, right, then there's, uh, in particular, there's the so-called uh, twofold, uh, twofold cost of males. Because you can imagine comparing uh, kind of these two populations, right, one of which has both males and females, and one of them is just maybe either reproducing uh, Asexually, or parthenogenically, or hermaphroditically, or whatnot. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and you know, so the, you know, you can just imagine. Well, if you have a male and a female, then on average, if they have two kids, you end up with another male and a female, right? And you know, of course, this can be many different males and females, so you don't have to have any sibling anything, right? Okay. But if everybody is having two gener, if if every generation, each uh, each female is giving birth to two um, two progeny, then you end up with a constant population size. Right, whereas if you start out in a population with just two females and they were reproducing uh, hermaphroditically, then you end up with, you know, whatever, more. Okay, eight. Okay, so you, you can see that you get a factor of two in the rate of exponential growth of the population. Yeah. But, I mean, it seems to me the question is not why sex, but that's why male. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, okay, right. So I, I think that. Uh, Right, so this is the most extreme cost of sex, right? But then also you can you can think about uh, even just horizontal gene transfer among bacteria that it's a costly behavior in some <coughs> way or another. It's not as costly as this, right? But if you're going to think about uh, bacteria that uh, that in their competent state, when B. subtilis kind of pulls in DNA, it, you know, it stops dividing and then it enters a state where it kind of reels things in and it can pick up. Um, you know, DNA that may be harmful in some cases, right? So there, there are various costs that are uh, for, um, for the, you know, in, if you want to call horizontal gene transfer sex, right? But in, in um, right, so the key thing of, of sexual reproduction is that it somehow is, um, is the sharing of the, of the DNA. And I'd say that this can either be uh, a relatively low cost or relatively high cost. But this is the most extreme version of it. And I'd say um, as, you know, as a species that reproduces Sexually with obligate biparental sex, then I'd say that, and you know, not only humans but mo almost all, uh, you know, animals uh, have uh, this form of reproduction. It's, it's, I would say, it's sort of surprising, given that this is a huge cost. Right? Yeah. So, it's, but it's not that all species that engage in any sort of uh, gene transfer ha bear this large cost, but they they bear more modest costs. Although, yeah. You're just saying that they can just have more kids. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. Although, I mean, the, the basic statement is still true, though. Let's say that the, these females all have three kids. And they get to grow exponentially, but then these guys grow faster, and ultimately there, there's going to be competition for resources, and th these ones will still win. Yeah. Right. So the, the question is, if you you can imagine you have a population that's reproducing sexually. If there one female has a mutation that leads her to start reproducing parthenogenically. That mutation you'd expect should spread throughout the population very rapidly, right? And indeed, there there are, there are these cases of, for example, sharks held in captivity, where a female held in captivity for for years eventually gives birth to 
to uh, you know to daughters, right? So th this, and um, as far as you know, it's so so this sort of virgin birth is is impossible. I'm not aware. Okay, well I'm not going to talk. <laughs> okay, uh, okay, but um, but yeah. So but it, in some animals it is at least possible. I'll say. Okay. Um, all right. Okay. So then you got, you have to ask. Well, okay. Well, what's um, what kind of select advantage could sexual reproduction have that could possibly compensate for this so-called twofold cost of sex, or twofold cost of males? Okay. And what what is the uh, what is the argument that's made in this uh, this paper? Anybody? Yes. That's right. Right. So this this recombination is favoring uh, genetic diversity. All right. So there are a number of different mechanisms. Um, I'd say that the, at the heart of it. Okay. So this idea of the red uh, the red queen hypothesis is. Um, all right. So let me see if I can find the actual quote for you guys. Uh, maybe not. Um, so it's from a Lewis Carroll novel, Through the Looking Glass. The quote was something, you have to run as, oh, shoot. Um, all right, never mind. OK, I can't remember what the quote was. Um, but um, the, idea, the idea is that sexual reproduction may allow a population to adapt against, say, changing environments more rapidly. Okay? And, and this has a, a couple of reasons, because you generate genetic diversity. Um, you, you don't have the same clonal interference kinds of effects that we talked about earlier. All right? So if you have asexual lineages, then if you have two beneficial mutations, they cannot both fix. Right? So the more fit version is going to fix, and then you have to wait for the next one. Right? Whereas in sexually reproducing populations, the, um, those genes can spread throughout the population sort of as genes rather than being tied to a particular individual. Okay? So that means that if you find yourself in a new environment, it may be the case that sexual reproduction can allow for the population to adapt more rapidly. But what's, you know, on one hand, you might say, well, the environment's always changing, so that can always favor the sexually reproducing populations. But then there's a feeling out there that maybe that's not enough, in the sense that the environment's not changing rapidly enough and dramatically enough to force uh, the population to uh, reproduce sexually as compared to asexually. Right? Uh, and so the, the, the proposal from the Red Queen hypothesis is that the, the, the constantly changing environment is a result of coevolution between hosts and their parasites. Right? Because parasites are always trying to target uh, kind of common host genotypes because that, they can spread on those. Right? So they're always, the parasites are evolving, but then the host is sort of being, host uh, population or genotypes are kind of being chased away by those parasites that are targeting them. Right? So the notion is that uh, parasites as a result of this coevolution, can be the source for the constantly changing environment that may be driving uh, the evolution of sex. Yeah. That's right. Yes. Right. So, so the question is why you know if yeah right. Um, okay. So I, I can give you my best guess on this. Right, first of all, I would say not everybody agrees that, that the Red Queen kind of hypothesis is the sort of true explanation, if a true explanation even exists. Right? Um, 
But within this framework, uh, you, you, you definitely want to try to explain why it is that uh, kind of large life forms seem to have a lot of obligate sexual reproduction. Because right? this is a very strong pattern that you see. Right? Uh, and I guess what I would say is that there's certainly a correlation between size, uh, physical size, and, um, and generation time. Right? Uh, and that generation time tells you about something about the typical time scales over which you can evolve. Right? So my sense of this is it just may be that, uh, that animals, uh, you know, in general, you know, large animals, um, they, by their nature, will evolve rather slowly as compared to their, uh, their parasites. And so that means that they are kind of the populations that are most in need of evolving, um, of, of speeding up their evolution. Um, and it's hard to know how convincing that argument should be, but yeah. Yes? What's the, what's the difference in, uh, in reproductive production time between phage and bacteria? Like how fast is Yeah. Right. Uh, OK, so yeah, so bacteria can, uh, well, as we were discussed, as we've discussed, uh, division times are kind of order hour. And phage, uh, I think, yeah, so when you get a phage infection, uh, so what happens is that the phage, you can infect as a single phage. And then uh, they will generate a burst. They'll, they'll kind of divide within the bacteria, bacterial cell and then burst out as a population of um, you know, 100, 200 kind of typical phage. And I think that, that that might take you know, four or five hours is kind of my sense. All right, so it's, I'd say that, um, and, then, and then they go off and they find, they find new bacteria. So in that sense, they, they may have, yeah, so it's, it's a little bit faster than the bacteria, I'd say. Yeah. Um, OK. All right, so what, um, can somebody say what the core experiment was that they did in, in this experiment? That's right. So there are, there are going to be, um, so this uh, worm, C. elegans, sort of a millimeter in size. right? And there are going to be three different conditions. One is there, there's kind of the, um, the wild type that can, uh, can outcross, can, can have males mate. Some that are, uh, then there's the obligate uh, outcrossing, which means there's, they, there are going to be, it's, they have to mate with males. And then there's the, uh, the obligate. Um, what do they call it? Not, um, not out, uh, obligate selfing? Obligate selfing, yeah. Okay. And then what do they do with those worms? That's right. So then there's a bacterial pathogen, serratia, uh, marescens, that, um, and they're going to have these three different conditions, right? Where they're going to, uh, for the for the SM, the bacteria, they're either going to have, uh, they're going to allow for coevolution, uh, where they take the bacteria uh, from each of the infections and propagate, 
or they're going to do kind of the, the no evolution where you just com com compete against the, the ancestor, right? And there's also control, okay? So there's coevolution, there's kind of this no evolution of the, of the bacteria, and then there's also control where there's no bacteria. And what was the most striking thing that they saw in this experiment? I guess I would say that the obligate cells in the population died. That's right. Right. So if you allowed the bacteria to, to be evolving against this obligately selfing population, this this killed uh, this killed the worms. Right? And what was the other thing that was maybe very striking about their experiment? Yeah. Um, the, the worms that could either outcross or Yep. Yeah, so this was, this was kind of amazing, right? So they saw, as a function of time, if you look at outcrossing, so kind of the rate of mating with the males, this started out at kind of like 0.2. Uh, and then in the presence of the coevolution, it kind of went up, and it goes up to 80, you know, maybe 80 percent. Okay, and for coevolution, it stayed up high. Whereas if the wild type, uh, if the wild type worms, if they continued to be just challenged by the ancestral bacteria, it initially came up, but then it came back down. So this is the coevolution, and this is um, this is the ancestral. Uh, Ancestral back, uh, SM. Right? So that there was a sense that that wild type population it initially it evolved to outcross more, but then once it had solved this problem of how to handle the ancestral serratia, the outcrossing rate went back down. Right? Um, so we're, we are um, pretty much out of time, but I do want to, uh, I don't know if you guys noticed the last sentence of the paper. It is amazing that they got this through, um, through the publication process. Right? Um, all right, so, the, you know, so they say, taken together, the results demonstrate that sex can facilitate adaptation to novel environments, but the long-term maintenance of sex requires that the novelty does not wear off. <laughs> I, you know, it's one, it's one of those things that you read and you, 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 you think, okay, so I'm, I, will leave, I will leave that sentence with you, and then um, we'll, uh, we'll uh, meet on Tuesday, okay?